think we're going to start. I'll just open up over here. So uh, hello, friends. Uh, welcome to another exciting Habura Shiur. Today we have the privilege of having Professor Tzvizor with us again in the second installment of his three-part series on Sephardi teleological halakha. During the series, we will explore the methodology, the considerations, and the innovation and ingenuity of the halachic framework of the Sephardi Chachamim by going through three different fascinating halachic cases. So last week, we explored the approach of Chacham Somech and Chacham Mani on treating Shabbat transgression in Bombay. And today, we will dive into the Teshuvah of Chacham Mesas on Jewish butchers in Tlemkin. Uh, for those who missed last week, not to worry, all our lectures are recorded and available on our website. And if you have any questions, please raise your hand, write in the chat box, or rate till the end when, please God, we will have questions. Uh, with that said, thank you all for joining us today. Uh, Professor, it is an honor and privilege to have you with us. The floor is yours. Um, okay, uh, good evening. And um, yes, so we're moving from India around 1880 to Algeria around 1927. And the person we will be speaking about, you can see him here on the screen in his later years. This is Rabbi Yosef Massas, who was born in Meknes in 1892, where he grew up and studied when he was exactly 20 years old in 1912, the French uh, began their conquest of Morocco, ultimately establishing a protectorate over Morocco. And in 1924, when Rabbi Massas was uh, 32 years old, he was invited to become the rabbi of the town of Tlemcen, which we'll soon see on another screen. And um, what we can say, okay, subsequently, after several years in Tlemcen, in 1916 years, in fact, in 19, so Rabbi Massas moved back to Morocco, where he served as a Dayan, as an important figure in the rabbinic leadership of Morocco. And then after he actually retired from his uh, employment in Morocco, he moved to Israel in 1964. And he lived in a suburb of the city of Haifa. And then in 1968, he was invited to be the chief rabbi, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Haifa, where he um, continued uh, to uh, serve until he passed away in 1974. Interestingly, the chief, the Sephardic chief rabbi of Haifa, the previous one was Rabbi Nisim bin Yamin Ohana, who will be looking into next week about a decision that he rendered when he was serving previously in Egypt. So um, Rabbi Yosef Massas is unquestionably uh, one of the, perhaps, perhaps one might say one of the most, if not the most 
innovative uh, Sephardic rabbi of the 20th century, uh, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef not excluded. And uh, he, uh, that being said, that's, I would extend that to the general global framework that he is one of the most interesting and creative rabbis of the entire 20th century across the board, across the Jewish world entirely. Um, so what we're now going to see, I'm going to stop this screen share for a moment and get to a different screen. And um, it should be here, just a minute, but um, I have to find the correct, just a minute. Here we are. Okay, so here we see, um, we see a map. In this map, we see on the right-hand side here, the uh, country of Algeria. And uh, this is the capital of Algeria, which is in Arabic, Madinat al-Jazair. And on the left here, we have Morocco, right? And you can see here the town, the city of Meknes, can tell what the temperature there is now. And here, this is Tlemcen. Okay, so the town of Tlemcen is on the scale of the vast area of this Algeria, uh, rather close to the border between Algeria and Morocco. Uh, Tlemcen was an important uh, Jewish town from um, throughout the medieval and uh, early modern period. And of course the borders changed, but when in 1924, Rabbi Messas moved from Meknes to Tlemcen, he was making a, a sort of a jump as it were in time, because as I mentioned earlier, Morocco had come under um, French rule, indirect French rule, because the whole structure of the Sultan and his army and his uh, whole bureaucracy remained in place. Above that, there was another level of the French protectorate, um, as was the case similarly in British dominated Egypt. But all this happened in 1912. However, Algeria had been conquered by the French in 1830, and they carried out there a policy which was very rare. Mainly, they decided that Algeria was nothing but, and here I'll close the, was nothing but a southerly portion of France. Right? So it's like today you have the state of Alaska or the state of Hawaii, which are officially part of the United States of America, 
but there's no geographical contiguity between them. Okay, and of course, Algeria, just south of France, across the Mediterranean, is much closer than Hawaii is to California, right? So the French in 1830 decided that Algeria was a part of France. It wasn't a colony, it wasn't a protectorate. And uh, they established that if a French citizen was living in Algeria, then that person could vote. There was parliamentary uh, sections, districts of the French parliament in Algeria. And they encouraged people to move from France, from Italy, from Spain, from Malta, etc., to move to Algeria and increase the European population. The Jews in Algeria, of course, had nothing previously to do with France. They were Arabic-speaking, Arabic-looking people who had been living there for hundreds of years. Um, and however, this was a great embarrassment to the Jews of France, who had just recently, uh, in 1789, uh, okay, we were about 1830, 1789, is about 40 years previously, had just become full French citizens and were very pleased with that after they had managed to convince the French that they were actually French and they were granted full emancipation. And now suddenly, France conquered Algeria, and here are all these Arabic-looking, Arabic-speaking Jews who were very far so from what the French Jews looked like and behaved like, but the French Jews established a two-pronged effort. One was to get the Jews of Algeria to improve themselves and become much more civilizationally advanced and forward-looking by adopting French culture, uh, French uh, language, and so on. And simultaneously, the Jews of France is, had a great lobbying effort to convince the French government that, in fact, the Jews of Algeria were essentially no different from the Jews of France and should be granted full French citizenship which indeed occurred in 1870. So from 1870, the legal status of the Jews in Algeria was exactly like that of the Jews in France. They were full citizens of France uh, to the great uh, chagrin of the many Christian Frenchmen and Italians and so on who were living in Algeria. And of course they were after all, these local Jews were really natives and so the Jews living in Algeria, however, now enjoyed the same legal status as the Jews in France, meaning the status of the Beit Din was zero. There was no way of the rabbis in any way disciplining Jews to do anything. The Judaism became like in Western European countries, absolutely voluntary. Jewish community, communal belonging and so on became really uh, voluntary. And the same framework of uh, 
a Jewish cult leadership, uh, meaning cult in the French sense of religious leadership uh, under the consistoire was imported to Algeria with Algeria becoming divided into three main provinces, uh, which uh, included uh, the area of Constantine, uh, which was one province, Alger, which was another province, and here, uh, around here is the city of Oran, which is the third province. Each one had a French rabbi from the consistoire. And getting back to Rabbi Nassas, when he arrived in Tlemcen uh, in 1924, uh, here's Oran, right? That's the capital of this district. Here's Tlemcen. When he arrived here, he found a Jewish community, this French-speaking, highly adoptive of the French Jewish uh, culture and concepts and a relatively very significant diffidence with regard to Jewish religious observance. That being said, it was very little intermarriage for two reasons. First of all, the Jews and the Muslims were two very different socio-cultural entities, and the Jews were not attracted to marrying into the Muslims, who, by the way, also had no legal status as citizens. And on the other side, the Christians uh, in uh, Algeria were, to a great extent, didn't like the Jews, who they thought were masquerading as Europeans, where they were really natives. So there were about, in Tlemcen in the mid-1920s, there were about 45,000 people, of them about 32,000 uh, Muslims, about 8,000 European Christians, and about 5,000 Jews. And the Jews there, as I said, were very um, diffident, to say the least about observing tradition. Specifically, we'll now move on to the issue at hand. When Rabbi Nassas came there, he saw that there were eight Jewish shops selling meat. Okay? Now, nobody could make a living just by selling meat to Jews. So these same butcher shops had two departments, like you go into a supermarket in many places, there's a kosher section and a non-kosher section, okay? By the same token, if you would walk into one of these butcher shops, there would be a kosher section and a non-kosher section. And it wasn't that the meat was all wrapped up in nylon and frozen and with some stamp from the Rabbanut. No, the meat looked exactly the same, okay? There's no visible difference between kosher meat and non-kosher meat. They look exactly the same. And the only way that you could know which was which was by asking the butcher. And you come and the butcher says, you come in, oh, Mrs. Cohen, right. Here there's a very nice uh, piece of meat that will be wonderful for your Shabbat meal. On the other hand, uh, walks in a different, uh, woman, uh, Madeleine de la Paix, 
And he says, oh, we have a wonderful section of ham just ready for you to cook for your husband for Sunday. So you could only know that this means we're kosher and that means it's not kosher by relying upon the word of the butcher shop owner. However, all of these butcher shops operated on Shabbat exactly as they did throughout the entire days of the week, except of course of Sunday, which was, they were supposed to be closed. So this, the butcher shops operated absolutely as they did entirely through the week. And now the question is, could you believe the owners of the butcher shop because, and now we're getting to the next section before we get actually to the text, that um, according to classic uh, rabbinic sources from the Talmud onwards, uh, you could believe a person who was in halachic good standing and the fact that somebody was willing to do some minor infraction of halacha didn't mean that he was willing to do a major infraction of halacha. However, if somebody was willing to do a major infraction of halacha, especially if he habitually did that, then such a person, Mikal Vachome, would be also willing to do a slighter infraction, and especially the Talmud sites in Masechet Chulin and Masechet Eruvin, that if there is a Jewish person who is Oved Avodah worships pagan gods, or Bechalel Shabbat Bepharhesia, publicly and openly desecrates the Shabbat, that person has, for all intents and purposes, the Allahic status of a goy. Um, now what that means, Allahically and so on, but what this means in this case is that if a person is willing to publicly desecrate the Shabbat, then according to Halakha, according to the Rambam, the Shulchan Aruch, and ever that person's word as an ed and his testimony is worth zero. Now, since these butcher shops were always open on Shabbat, obviously you couldn't rely at all upon what these people told you. This is kosher, and that's not kosher, right? So there were people who began in Telemsen to uh, say that you cannot, in good conscience, buy meat in any of these butcher shops, right? You can't do that. And this is the issue that Rabbi Masas was faced with. And now we'll switch this and get to. Another text. Let's try that. Okay, here we are. And now I'm going to 
increase the width of the text and move down. Okay, and here we are. And here is the text. Um, and he writes, and I'm going to be reading certain sections of the Hebrew and translating them. Here in the holy city of Tlemcen, all of the butcher shops are flagrantly desecrating the Shabbat in matters that are isu de oraita. And now he describes his efforts, Rabbi Masas, to change the situation by convincing someone in the community to do something about it. Since Adar 1924, when I came here, I turned to the leaders of the community to try to have them assist me in changing this situation. They didn't pay any attention to me. Very violently, vigorously. I made a lot of trouble. So it didn't succeed. Because the leaders of the community are weak and they're not willing to take up this issue. Why? They, they are afraid to point out, this is a metaphor, to point out the shortcomings of the butchers. The butchers will say to the leaders of the community, you're telling us not to open our shops on Shabbat? What do you do on Shabbat? What do you do with this? What do you do? Who are you, who are you telling us to be more religious? Let's start from the bottom. He started to approach the butchers themselves, to be friendly with them, to meet with them in the evenings. And with great friendship and kindness. After much, much travail, I managed to get them to agree to shut down their operations on Shabbat and Hag. But they only agreed to do this if all of them together would shut down. Because if they would all shut down except one. Now, the Gentile Christian customers would not be able to buy meat from the people closed on Shabbat. So where would they come to buy on their Sunday dinner? Dafka from the one that remained open. So the butcher said, okay, if everybody, all the Jewish butchers closed, 
We'll do it. There was one person who was a holdout. He's very tough. I did careful planning. That are appropriate to the character of this person. He has a very, very close friend. Whose advice he always follows. I went to the friend of this butcher. I asked him to help me. We went to him in the evening. That was so many convincing and stories and this and that. He promised us with many uh, oaths, Bashem, Vitorato, Vitsadikam Vichasidav. By his own life, by the wife of his wife and children. And so now the final fallout for holdout stop, and they're all willing to close their shops on Shabbat. He says, my joy was great that I managed to convince them all to shut down their shops. This fellow backtracked on all his oaths and his promises and his what he swore by the life of his wife and children. Early in the morning, and now the whole structure fell apart because the other one said, if he's not willing to close, we're not willing to close. Finished. So we tried again and again. Forget it. They're not willing to, nobody will do anything. So what could he do? Okay. There's no way he could get these butchers to voluntarily close down. And there's no way under French law that any sanctions can be imposed upon them for opening their shops on Shabbat. Oh. Now, says, I will tell you the reader what I did after that. Now I'm going to show you the halachic argument that I developed to explain why, despite that these shops are open on Shabbat, the meat that you buy from them and they tell you it's kosher, you could rely upon that and you absolutely could be confident that you're buying kosher meat despite how these people behave on Shabbat. Okay, so that's the move that we're going to see 
how he did it. And now he's going to explain why he did it. I saw these slanders being uh, spread by people who consider themselves super religious, super from Iraq by the, the, the flick of their tongue. Uh, they are casting aspersion on the holy people, meaning upon the Jews. That all the Jews in this community, they say that by continuing to buy from these, what these butchers claim is kosher meat, in fact, all the people who do that are actually feeding their families with non-kosher meat. It's It's a waste of time to buy meat from these people. I don't agree with that attitude. Why? Because it's not good in the eyes of their master, meaning in the eyes of God, the Amarta Alaihu God does not take favorably to people who cast aspersion upon the Jewish community. And now I'm going to explain to you what the basis for the heter of this meat is, despite that they're open on Shabbat. And he's saying the reason is because, and now this phrase, the is from the Talmud, right? In Sanhedrin, uh, there are various ways of interpreting various verses. Resh Lakish typically says these in a very harsh uh, interpretation, and Rabbi Yochanan says that's not the way we should interpret it. We always have to interpret the verses so as to reflect in the most positive possible way upon the Jewish people. Okay. Now he's going to make two moves. One move is to say, that while it's true that these people are mechalel Shabbat it's not everyone who is mechalel Shabbat who moves into the category of being absolutely like a goy. Okay. It's true that mechalel Shabbat you can depend on a person who is defined as mechalel Shabbat on any other issue in the Shukhan Aruch. However, there is a dispute and a disagreement among the scholars. What exactly is the definition of Mechalel Shabbat which you have to fit in order to get to this radical disqualification? He says, 
different people hold different views. Some people say that even if you're Mahalei Shabbat and Isur the Rabbanan, you're out. Some people say that if you're Mahalei Shabbat and Isur the Oraita, you're out. And a small number of people, in fact, one person absolutely, Rabbi Och who published some book in 1792, and one possible interpretation of another authority say it's not enough that you're being on something the oraita. No, the type of action that you do against the Torah has to be such an action that were the Sanhedrin sitting today you would be chayav mita. You would be obligated to a death penalty. Okay? And he says, now which of these auctions should we choose to proceed in our discussion of these fellows, these butchers in Clemson? And here Rabbi Masas lays forth his idea. He says, Daili rak I told you there's a difference of views. In other words, the reason leads us to choose the most narrow definition as advocated by Rabbi in Mishnat Hachamim Rabbi Hochgelanter, meaning that only if you on Shabbat publicly desecrate the Shabbat in a way that would have entailed sekilah in the time of Chazal, only then could you possibly be defined as Bechel Shabbat of Aresia, who is completely disqualified. Uma Gamba Zaman Hazeh, especially he says in our times, Shehador Parutz, people act against Torah. Nobody can discipline anybody about their religious behavior. If we would choose a more broader definition, if we would say, well, let's choose a broader definition that anybody who's Mechalel Shabbat on any whether or not it entails skila, anybody like that is disqualified. By doing this, we would be including a very large number of the Jews of the community under this rubric of completely disqualified. And this would not enable anyone to go on living a Jewish life. In other words, he's choosing the definition of what would mean in light of the consequences of choosing this or that definition. He says, the broader definition you have of who's Mechalei the more and more and more members of the community, given as people behave today, would be included in that, and that would be impossible. Um, 
ואם כן יחזה ענן, and therefore let's check. בכל המלאכות, לעבדי הנקצרי בשבת, אם חייבים עליהם מיטת בית דין או לא, let's not check. What they actually do on Saturday, on Shabbat, when their shops are open, and let's check each of their activities to see whether that activity entails that would have uh, merited death by Sekilah in the times of Chazal. And now he goes through an incredible list of, you see what things they did. They go to the local non-kosher slaughterhouse and they have going working for them, uh, killing the animals, not according to Alakha, and taking off their hide. Oh, this is only something that's Isud Rabbanan, telling a goy to do something for you. Sometimes they now take the carcass of this non-kosher animal, put it on a wagon, and the wagon is attached to a horse or a donkey, and the Jewish butcher on Shabbat morning, other people are coming back from Beit Knesset. What is he doing? Taking this wagon with the non-kosher carcass, through the streets of the city, leading the animals back to his own butcher shop. All he's doing is not giving his animals rest on Shabbat, which is, it's mitzvah ase. Right. And let's take one more example. They now come and they have to chop up the meat into sections that they can sell. There is an Av but the original Av Menachah so there's not Isur Deoraita. It says that you're allowed to cut up food for the animals on Shabbat. They have an axe, but they break the bones of these animals on Shabbat. Sometimes sparks come out. Oh, that's not the fire. Which somebody could be liable on Shabbat, and it's not Makebe Patish, Mashiotim Lifamini Totse Esh, and Bezemitat Bedin, Vafilu Isur Torah Leka. Emelechet Machshemet Asra Torah. Torah forbids only something which we intended to do, but here what they want to do is really break the bones. Sometimes spunks come out. Oh, that's not Isur Deoraita. Okay, and he examines what they do. These people actually on Shabbat behave exactly like they do on weekdays. 
But he says, if you look carefully, you'll see that none of these things entail the very severe isu, the oraita, which would have entailed uh, isu sekila, one sekila at the time of Chazal, they do very extensive things against Shabbat. Nevertheless, is none of these activities when you examine them carefully that fit the very specific and narrowest possible definition Therefore, they are not who lose their status and are like a goy. You can now rely upon them in all matters of halakha. Okay, so that's move number one. Move number two, he says, there's another thing which we have to take into consideration, which is the specific context of the Jewish community in places like Tlemcen. He said, there's a lot of people who on Shabbat do many things against the rules of Shabbat and in general, do things that are not in accordance with halacha, but a sizable chunk of the community, a significant major part of the community, do want to eat kosher meat. They want to eat kosher meat. They may cook the kosher meat on Shabbat. Okay, they may travel somewhere and make a barbecue on Shabbat with kosher meat, but they want kosher meat. And therefore, of all the sanctions that are possible, and were possible in the past against people who misbehave according to Allah, which don't exist today in their framework of selling and buying kosher meat, this is something that the public takes very seriously. And this is katsav If someone in a kosher butcher shop will sell terefa, Maria ishimala va'olam, ve'shofchim alav buz ve'kalon, ve'yordimim olechayav mesalkim otomim lachto. Yes, that people are not willing to tolerate. They'll yell at him and scream at him and force him to stop selling kosher meat. They won't stand for that. But even if it turns out that they need a kosher butcher and they want to return him to his work, they will do something which is incredibly shameful. They return him to his work in the butcher shop they put a mashgiach. Putting a mashgiach is the greatest shame that you could imagine. 
‫שזה קלון גדול שאין למעלה הימנו. ‫This is the worst shameful act ‫that you could do to anyone, ‫לחשובי כגוי לעיני כל הקהל. ‫What does it mean that there's a Jewish person ‫selling meat, he says the meat is kosher, ‫and you say, no, we don't believe you. ‫You have to have a משגיח. ‫What does this mean that you think this person is a liar? You think this person is like a boy who can't be trusted in matters of Torah. So now take this idea. We have become so accustomed to the notion of kosher meat without ashgocha. It's worthless. You can't depend on the word of the butchers at all, right? And he's saying that's the lowest basis, most shameful thing that you could say about a Jewish person, which is that he's a liar and you don't believe without a Mashiach. Okay, so this is the fact that people who, he says, otherwise might be willing to do all different things against Salacha, נוכל לומר שאף המחלל שבת בפרהסיה נאמן בדבר זה. Even a person who habitually transgresses against Shabbat, even if it were Yisurim of Skila, נאמן בדבר זה הוא could be trusted on matters of culture. כי זה מרתה תרתית טובה, he's trembling and fearful לעשות המעשה הרע הזה to sell. Non-kosher meat, as if it was kosher, then if sakhayutekos, that would cease his parnosa veliot lecherpa lemashalus, and everybody would disgrace him and think that he is the worst of the worst. But now he goes on to another idea. He says, okay, until now, what I've been trying to convince you is that we should take the narrowest possible definition of Mechlel Shabbat Varesia only if he does things that in ancient times would have been impaled, sekila, and anyone who doesn't fall in that category, although they may do all of very non-appropriate things on Shabbat, Don't lose their status. He says, okay. Now I'll give you another line of reasoning. Let's say that you want to take the broader definition of Mechel Shabbat of Now I'm going to explain to you why the whole hierarchy, if a person is willing to do this, they're willing to do that. And therefore, if a person is willing to be Mechel Shabbat of that they'll do any other thing against Torah. He says that hierarchy, which is very clear in all the halachic sources, is not valid in today's Jewish reality. He says, it's clear somebody who's willing to do a severe transgression is willing to do a lesser transgression, and 
Chirushavadvanesia is the greatest possible transgression. It's true, that's what it says in all the sources. Nuchalomao, but we can say, this was a description, a faithful description of the ladder of seriousness by which people related to different actions in the time of Chazal. Also today, in communities that take Shmirat Shabbat seriously, which is, should be that way. In those communities, you can say that if somebody is willing to be they're willing to do anything else. So the hierarchy of Averot holds either in ancient times of Chazal or today in from communities. But here in Tlemcen and in other places today, mainly where Jews are much less religious and less Shomer Shabbat, many honorable people. They habitually disregard the rules of Shabbat. The general community in places like France, Clemson, other places in the Jewish world, many people who are otherwise upright, fine persons transgress habitually against Shabbat. It doesn't seem to them to be any great problem. However, other mitzvot, which technically in the sources are less important than Shabbat, they treat this very seriously. Now you can see today in many communities in the Jewish world, especially, by the way, in Sephardic communities, the people who will on Shabbat travel, do many things, they won't enter a room without kissing the mezuzah. Right? Uh, and uh, they will keep kosher at home. But they may go out to eat in a non-kosher restaurant. Or do other things against Torah. In such places, says Rav Masash, the traditional hierarchy of what a person is willing to do that, certainly they're willing to do this, it doesn't hold. Today, a person is Mechalel Shabbat of Parhesia that doesn't indicate anything about his trustworthiness and his status as a Jew with regard to other mitzvot. The special status of in modern times is not a true filter of reality. If you look at reality and you look at the text, it doesn't fit. Shabbat is no more important than any other 
איסורים, שכל מי שהוא מפרסם לעבור על אחת מהן, נאמן בשאר האיסורים. And therefore he says the bottom line is with regard to these butcher shops that are open on Shabbat, A, if we adopt, as we should under the circumstances, the most narrow definition of Shabbat Varesia, these people don't fall into that definition. They don't lose their status as uh, trustworthy Jews. B, the whole notion that trustworthiness depends upon not being the Cheshbat Varesya was once true in reality of the general, most Jews in a secularized world, it's not true. And therefore, taking all these things to account, Pashutu Barur Shira Uilanu, it's clear, Litalech Leat Leruach Azman. We have to proceed slowly, taking into account the spirit of the time. Taking into account the negative characteristics Jewishly, as far as Jewish observance is concerned, of the people who are following the liberal and free ways that have become commonplace in our generation. The power to impose halacha on the public has departed from the hands of rabbis and dayanim. And also the lay leaders of the community they're happy to have people not following the letter of the law. May God lead us to a different situation in which people are observant of halacha. And uh, I will conclude by pointing out that what we see here is a clear instance of theological halacha because taking everything into account Rabbi Massa says it's imperative that we declare that this meat being sold on Shabbat in the Jewish butcher shops being sold on Jewish butcher shops that are open on Shabbat it's imperative to decide that this meat is kosher. And we will do whatever is possible. And because he was very learned and had a very broad grasp of the sources, he was able to bring into play all of these halachic sources that enabled him to reach the decision that he declared a priori must be reached under these circumstances, out of responsibility for the Jewish general public, who the vast majority of them are not Shomrei Shabbat. Okay, and that's right now. I'll stop the share. And um, if anybody has any comments or questions, 
Chacham, thank you so much. That was really amazing. Um, does anyone uh, have any questions, comments? I think we had one in the chat box by uh, Robert. So he asks, Rabbi Zohar, was there an alternative source of getting kosher meat to these butchers or was the alternative eating vegetarian? Well, there was at that time no developed refrigeration and uh, frozen meat that could be imported from uh, Algeria, from the city of Algiers, which is 200 kilometers away or this. So that was impractical situation. So you had the alternative of being a vegetarian. You can say, all right, Torah needs us to be a vegetarian. Everybody should be a vegetarian in Clemson. Any other questions? Can I, can I just ask a question? Please. Yeah. Um, what was the name of the rabbi who was referred to, who you said in 1792 made some um, uh, halachic decision that um, Rabbi Messas was able to rely on? Okay. So this rabbi is Yosef. I think in the footnote, it gives his name. And he was living in Eastern Europe in the town of Zamos. And as far as I recall, he didn't issue this as a tshuva in practical reality, but he wrote a learned halachic work. And in this work said that after considering, he thinks that the best definition of who is like a going, it's only if the person desecrates Shabbat and Yisul Sekila. But that's a highly unusual within the spectrum of halacha, right? That's a very highly unusual position. Usually the issue is it's enough to be Mechalei Shabbat the or you have to be in Chalel Shabbat Beisur Deoraita, but if you did it in Beisur Deoraita, oh, everybody agrees you're Chalel Shabbat Beisur. So he went and intentionally, okay, and this uh, this is uh, pointed out if you look uh, in in, uh, in in my book of uh, uh, creative uh, halachic creativity. You, you see that Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, in his introduction to his work of responsa, he says, the great advantage of having a wide repertoire and knowledge of many, many, many sources is that you know to choose the source that's most appropriate for the case at hand, rather because if you, the less you know, the less options you have. So in that sense, some people might feel that is like the burden of halacha. Oh, the more we know all these sources, the more we know this is this and that and that, we're constrained. But the opposite is true. Knowledge liberates. But in a sense, does that not work against the Sephardi tradition, which is more about 
codifying. I mean, if you think of Rambam or you think of the Shulchan Aruch, you're codifying it so that you have a set set of principles and then you can go and do other things. Um, but so, so whereas the Ashkenazis, they, they will look at all the sources and they'll spend years and years in the yeshivas working out all the different sources. So it's interesting okay. that, yeah. Okay, so yes, so thank you for raising that point. So first of all, I'll relate to the second section, which is that typically in Ashkenazi yeshivot, you don't look at Sherotu Chubot. Today, when if even if you're a, a rabbi, it's in many Ashkenazic circles, it's a waste of your time to engage in deciding halachic issues because only Gadol Hadol could really make significant decisions. And you can't be cholic by claiming that you have a different view that's fascinating. But it, so you, the notion that in Ashkenazi yeshivot, people really get into halakha as opposed to the intricacies of the texts. On the other hand, also this issue of Sephardic, it's true that there's a thrust of codification. But then if you look, for instance, at the Teshuvot of Rambam, of Maimonides, you see that in certain cases he says, okay, but here I advise you not to follow the halacha. Um, okay, famously, Rambam declared that you don't have filat chazarat ashaliyah tzibur bemusaf shel Shabbat. He eliminated it completely. He said, why people are talking, people are this, stop. Now it says in Chazal to have it. Okay, but no, the bal tefillah, will pray out loud once. It won't be at Filat Lachash. And we'll get through with Musaf and go home. And we won't have Filat Lachash and then Chazrat Shatz in Musaf on Shabbat. And then he has a different Teshuvah, which uh, I'm a great admirer of because I was interested in issues of of Giyu. So he says that according to the Talmud, if a Jew is uh, uh, suspected of having sexual relations or a sexual relationship with a non-Jewish woman, even if that woman converts, she's now Jewish, she can't marry him. She can marry anybody else. And that's in the Talmud, in the Mishnah. Okay? He shouldn't marry her. Rambam was faced with a case where a young Jewish man had a non-Jewish maidservant, apparently very attractive. And the rumor was apparently not unfounded that they were having a sexual relationship. And Rambam says, okay, what this person should do is to free her when you free a shefcha or evit kinahani, they become immediately Jewish and marry her. And he says, it's true that this is against an explicit Mishnah, but it's the lesser evil. 
מוטב תאכל שחוטות מוטות ולא איך לעשות להשם הפרו תורתך. So the same people can, although they have a code, rule otherwise in a teshuvah. And Simon, go for it. Yeah, you frame this as teleological halakha. I was thinking you could also frame it as ontological halakha, especially thinking of the, of the second approach, where he says that the determinations of Hazal are, are trumped by reality. If the reality, psychological reality today is different, then that changes the halakha. Uh, is is this some, also an approach which is characteristic of Sephardic as opposed to Ashkenazic Boskim? I'm asking specifically because I, I know there's, there's quite a well-known example of Rav Soloveitchik um, stating very, very strongly that in the case of um Tandu, that if Chazal stated that way, then that stays the, stays the halacha, even if the facts on the ground change. Um. Yes, so obviously the approach that we've seen here is is quite different from that. Um, uh, it is certainly, uh, and in fact, the second part of this teshuvah, right, is directly against it. He says, it says in all of the sources that if there's a hierarchy, if somebody's willing to, they'll do anything. He says that was through once mm-hmm. but it's not an eternal statement about the real value hierarchy of the real life Jewish community as it is before us in a secularized world okay so we're not making halachic psak only for the from people our responsibility is to make a psak that will take into reality, into account the reality of the general Jewish community. Now, obviously, if somebody intentionally wants to assimilate and they don't care about anything, that's a different issue. But people who identify as Jewish and want to be part of the community, but they don't follow halacha according to as it should be, those people have to be important in our consideration of how to rule in and we have to see reality as it is and take that into account. I think we have another two questions in the chat. Um, we have one from Danielle uh, Dorche. Do you want to ask your question, Danielle? Um, yes. Um, if we broadly survey halakhic uh, response from Svadi Rabbanim, do we find this method of theological halakha being applied uh, as a general rule, or are these exceptions to the rule? And, and how does that contrast with the shivot from Ashkenazi Rabbanim? Um, okay, so first of all, do we find this theological halakha? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the chat, thank you, because just to make sure that I got you correct. Okay, so no, I won't say that 
all Svadic rabbis all the time follow this idea. Um, I'll be, when you consider it, one preliminary for embarking upon such a move of is to have the notion that were we to make a halachic ruling, a standard halachic ruling according to the books, that would lead to intolerable consequences or completely inappropriate consequences. And when such a situation obtains, or when somebody says, no, it's not intolerable consequences, we could live with that. So they don't have to get into this whole move of let's find something else that works better. So it's a, first of all, it's a matter of reasoned consideration. Is the, are the consequences going to be intolerable or not? And also are there, so these cases are not exceptions, but that doesn't mean that all Sephardic Rabbanim under all situations will make a theological halachic move, okay? Because they first have to believe that this situation is not terrible making the standard move and contrasting with the response of Ashkenazi Rabbanim. So once again, uh, if we would move back to medieval times, we might not see such a contrast. But in modern times, a major move of the Ashkenazic rabbinic establishment in Europe was to say halachic change is antithetical to what we should be doing, so you get, you do have certain Ashkenazic rabbis that hold otherwise. For instance, this what was cited before about Tabla Meitav Tandu that was held by Rabbi Soloveitchik. So Rabbi Rachman of blessed memory was actually pushed out, although he was an important person in YU, he was pushed out of YU and sidelined in the American Orthodox community because he maintained that Tabla Meitav Tandu was not an internal principle that women today don't, are not willing to live with any old husband just not to be uh, unmarried. So, and today, by the way, there are not a few Sephardic Rabbanim who have studied in Ashkenazi Yeshivot, see themselves as Haredim, and therefore are less inclined to make such moves. Um, okay, now I see there's another question by uh, Robert Sassoon. If we take this of Chayav Skila, then since the butcher was not warned that what he was doing that none of the actions fit into this category. Um, okay, that's a good point. Um, and the 
Now, it's true that in the time of Chazal, when the original halacha obtained, then people would not receive certainly the death penalty if they were not warned beforehand, just when they were about to conduct themselves in this way. Do you know this? This would entail your death penalty. And here we have two kosher edim looking at you, uh, right? Um, but apparently, if you look at the issue of Bechalel Shabbat of Farhesia in the sources, it, uh, when they talk about Hilchot Eovin and somebody who was Bechalel Shabbat of Farhesia, it's like a goy for the purposes of Eovin. They don't seem to be using that in this strict sense. So, um, it would be that even if they were not, even if he wouldn't technically have been liable because of not being warned, was the action that he specifically did, would that have made him eligible for skila had he been warned? That's apparently how it's being constructed here. Thank you so much, Professor. It was incredible tonight. And uh, thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, please join us next week. We're going to be diving into Chacham uh, Ochana and Karait uh, intermarriage. And uh, we also have a lot of other incredible shooting lined up. So hope to see you guys. And thank you so much, and, Professor. Okay, and, and I will be sending you uh, a text from the Talmud, a sugya, an agadic sugya, which you can read ahead of time. I'll send it to you from Sepharaya. So with English and, and the original. And because that text will come into play at a certain point in the discussion of Rabbi Ochana, and rather than get into that whole thing, I will be sending you, and you can read up this Talmudic text uh, before leading up to the Shio of next week. Perfect. So I'll okay. send that out. And uh, have a good night, everyone. Thank you so much. Laila Tov.